Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Welcome to the Faith at Work Sermon Podcast. I'm Pastor Jim Melvin. For the past two weeks, I've been talking about the eight Beatitudes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew 5. This week, we're going to move ahead to specific teachings of Jesus from the Sermon. Today, I'll focus on Jesus' teachings about anger, revenge, and love and forgiveness. The reading comes from Matthew 5, 38 to 48. Be forewarned that it's a challenging reading, so try to keep an open mind. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your heavenly Father. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, What reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here ends the reading. Jesus starts his teaching for the gathered crowd by telling them something that they already knew, and likely employed in their daily life. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The crowd gathered there that day had heard that saying before. It was from Scripture. Blood feuds were part of their culture. If somebody did something bad to you, you do something bad back to them. But where did that saying or that law originally come from? If you say the Old Testament, you're wrong. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth originally came from the ancient Mesopotamian code of King Hammurabi of Babylon. The code is an ancient compilation of laws which were discovered in Iran in 1901, inscribed on a steel or large ceremonial stone. It was one of the earliest written legal codes in existence, dating back some 2,000 years before the birth of Christ. Among the 282 ordinances of the code were the following. If a man put out the eye of another man, his eye shall be put out. If a son strikes his father, his hand shall be hewn off. If a man builds a house badly and it falls and kills the owner, the builder is to be killed. If the owner's son was killed, then the builder's son is to be killed. The Code of Hammurabi bears a lot of similarities with the Ten Commandments, but it's believed that Hammurabi lived several centuries before Moses. The equivalent law uh, from the Law of Moses in Leviticus reads, Anyone who maims another shall suffer the same injury in return. Fracture for fracture, 
eye for eye, tooth for tooth, the injury inflicted is the injury to be suffered. These laws are not only reciprocal, but they're proportional. The punishment should fit the crime. In our culture, for example, the death penalty is sometimes imposed for murder, but it would never be imposed for a typical traffic violation. The practice of blood feuds or vendettas, where equivalent injuries were meted out as retributions for injuries, is prevalent throughout history. In the United States, clan feuds were not uncommon in the 19th century, the most famous of which is the feud between the Hatfields and McCoys in Kentucky and West Virginia. Between 1863 and 1891, over a dozen members of each family were killed. All of the killings began with the death of Asa McCoy as he returned from the Civil War. They went on to practice an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth with a vengeance. In this sad story, which is enshrined in American lore, we can see the real problems with an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Where does it all end? Blood feuds often devolve into a continuing cycle of death and mayhem. Mahatma Gandhi, who advocated for nonviolent resist- resistance in India's struggle for independence from the British, said, An eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. And Martin Luther King Jr., paraphrasing Gandhi in promoting nonviolence in the American Civil Rights Movement, said, If we do an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, we will soon be a blind and toothless nation. Here's where Jesus' new teaching becomes so revolutionary and challenging. Jesus says, I say to you, do not resist an evildoer, but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. Yeah, it's pretty hard to reconcile an eye for an eye with turn the other cheek. I'll go as far as saying that Jesus' teaching makes the demand for revenge obsolete. Paul picks up on the theme in Romans 12:19 where he says, "Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay," says the Lord. Because we're called to turn the other cheek, it doesn't mean that we abandon law and order and throw justice out the window. Yes, we can turn offenses over to God to take care of it. But in a civilized society, we rely on civil and criminal justice systems. We can abandon our personal vendettas that can lead to escalating injury and let this dispassionate system take care of it. While the justice system can be flawed and often breaks down, it's a much better instrument for punishing the guilty while protecting the innocent. We are free to resolve our inner desire for revenge, and hopefully in the end we will come out in a better place than if we take the law into our own hands. Martin Luther talked about us living in two kingdoms, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of heaven. For our life in the kingdom of the world, Luther said that God has instituted secular authorities. 
In a perfect world, he said, such secular authorities would not be necessary. We would all treat one another with love and compassion. We would always be ready to forgive. We do not live in such a world, however. Therefore, we submit ourselves to the governing authorities for our own good and for our protection until the kingdom of God comes in its fullness. Well, that makes sense. That's the way the civilized world works. But hold on to your hats. Jesus is going to take us further down the rabbit hole. Once again, he starts with the common wisdom or the wisdom from Scripture. You have heard that it said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Love your neighbors. That's pretty obvious. It's part of the great commandment where Jesus says, Love your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. But the second part seems pretty obvious too. It's natural for us almost by definition to hate our enemies. But Jesus completely turns this around. We are to love our enemies and the people who do bad stuff to us. Well, how do you do that? How can you possibly love your enemy? The best example of loving your enemies that I can think of occurs when Jesus is on the cross. In Luke 23, 33-35, we read, When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right hand and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing, and the people stood by watching. You see, Jesus literally practiced what he had preached. But such moral courage lies beyond most of us. Instead of talking about how we love our enemies, let's do it from a more personal perspective. The first thing I'd like us to do is for us to name who our enemies are. Maybe write out a list. When I did this little thought exercise, I realized that I don't really have any enemies. Enemies are people who are hostile or who want to harm you. That's too strong a word for any relationship I have. As far as I know, I can't think of anyone who considers me their enemy either. I can't really say that I ever have had a real personal enemy. To tell you the truth, that kind of surprises me. Perhaps you can identify an enemy that you have today or have had in the past. So let's suppose that you do. Identify what the nature of the conflict that you have with that person. Why are you my enemy? Look back at the history of your relationship with that person and see what drove you apart. Other than the fact that the person may just be a jerk, there's probably something that has happened to set your enemy against you and you against them. Very truly, very likely, you will find that it's something relatively minor. You may not even remember what it is. Identifying our conflict or lack of one is the first step of loving our enemies. Sometimes we may think of an enemy is because of our we are in competition with one another. In the workplace, for example, you and a 
colleague may be competing for some promotion. You and your colleague may start to focus on the other's bad qualities or even invent negative qualities and put the worst construction on everything they do. This way of behaving is in contradiction to Luther's explanation of the Eighth Commandment. You shall not bear false witness. In his catechism, he states, You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not tell lies about our neighbor, betray him, slander him, or hurt his reputation, but defend him, speak well of him, and explain everything in the kindest way. When we put the best construction on everything our neighbor does, then we are not only likely to forgive them, we are likely not to think of them as enemies in the first place. In order to put the best construction on our neighbor's actions, we need to actively seek to understand them and empathize with them. And we do that by listening to them and establishing a non-judgmental relationship with them. Come to think about it, I did once have somebody I considered an enemy. It was a colleague who tried to undermine me at work. He wanted to replace me in my supervisory position. He saw me as an enemy who had to be defeated. You know what? After a while, I saw him as my enemy as well. And despite his talents and significant contributions on the job, I ended up firing him. I regret that outcome, though it was many years ago. In retrospect, things may have worked out better if I would not seen him as my enemy, but rather sought to understand him. I know that he had a demanding authoritarian father who he always sought to please. And his father's way of getting ahead in life was doing whatever it took and taking out anyone who stood in his way. Instead, because I failed to put the best construction on his actions, I extracted a tooth for a tooth and took him out instead. True empathy makes it possible for us to forgive our enemies because we don't see them as enemies, but as human beings like they are. Instead of trying to destroy our enemies and letting ourselves be consumed by hatred and a desire for revenge, we can instead pray for them and do our best to help them. It doesn't always work. I may have still ended up firing my colleague, but my motivation would have been pure and I wouldn't have been burdened by the guilt that I still carry today. And more compassionate handling of the situation on my part may have made it possible for him to grow in future jobs. These two teachings of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount about revenge and love of one's enemies can teach us something further. In his sermons, Jesus plays the rabbi, helping his listeners interpret their Jewish scriptures and apply them to their lives. By looking at his example, maybe we can get some hints about how we interpret our own scriptures, both the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian scriptures. If we don't have an understanding of the different ways to approach the biblical teachings, we may become guilty of trying to bend them to fit our own agendas of the moment. 
may we may use them to make the point that we have predecided or to condemn somebody that we want to condemn. A reliable way to approach the Bible is to make use of Scripture the way that Jesus did. First of all, he honored his own religious tradition and scriptures. He knew the Hebrew scriptures. There are instances in the Bible where we find him reading and teaching and explaining the Torah and the temple. He doesn't throw out the law and the prophets, but expands and clarifies them. That, by the way, was the established practice among the rabbis. Likewise, we do not throw out what we learned in Sunday school or in Bible studies. We don't dismiss the Bible as irrelevant and outdated. It is our starting point. More controversially, Jesus ignores and sometimes even contradicts parts of his scripture when it defies the principle of love and forgiveness, which he exemplified in his life. He interpreted scripture in its historical context. He didn't focus on the tyrannical and vengeful God of some of the early writings, but instead presented us with a loving and forgiving God. That's the God that we know most familiarly in the New Testament. We need to be on the lookout for slipping back into referring to the vengeful God to help us punish those with whom we do not agree. In his Bible teaching, Jesus connects the dots and sees a continuity in Scripture from beginning to end. The story begins with the creation and sin. It moves to the stories of Exodus and exile, wandering in the desert. God then proves his faithfulness to the people and walks with them through history. Finally, past Jesus, there is the story of redemption and resurrection, the ultimate goal of God's sacred history. To paraphrase the Reverend Martin Luther King, the arc of God's story is long, but it bends toward heaven. I challenge you to go back and read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in the light of Jesus himself. You will find it more meaningful and helpful to apply to your own life. Amen. Thank you for joining me today. Until next time, may God bless you and keep you. May God speak to you with wisdom and grace. May God's light shine upon you and give you peace.